Welcome to Men Talk, the podcast that takes a deep dive into the world of miscarriage, infertility, infant loss, and stillbirth. Hosted by Daniel Landau, founder of menshelpline.org, we'll be sitting down every week with real guys to discuss their stories, struggles, and triumphs. So grab a drink, sit tight, and let's talk. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Men Talk podcast, where men talk about infertility and miscarriage. I'm very excited. On this episode, we have an incredible guest. His name is Dr. Hernandez Ray. He is one of the doctors and founders of an incredible fertility practice in Florida called Conceptions Florida. And uh, I will let him take the floor away, introduce him, himself, and we'll go from there. Uh, thanks, Daniel. Thanks for having me on the show. It's a uh... It's a real pleasure, and it's, I think it's incredible work that you're doing. I mean, I think the men sometimes get overlooked in this journey, and uh, the fact that you've taken on this this role is, is fantastic. Um, so, yes, as Daniel said, my name is Armando Hernandez-Ray. I've been in private practice in, in Florida and South Florida for about 18 years now. I'm medical director and founder of Conceptions Florida. that currently have uh, several offices, mainly still in South Florida. And uh, we're very proud of our results. We're proud of the, the care that we give, focusing more on 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 customer service and and hand holding, which is what I think in primarily in the world of infertility, couples uh, need more than anything. Um, I'm a professor at both universities, at the University of Miami and uh, at Florida International University in both medical schools. And I have the residents and medical students, which I love and. Right now, uh, Daniel caught me in between surgeries, so I'm hoping I don't get called prematurely. You never know in the life of a doctor when you get called, especially when you're on call. This is true. <laughs> I appreciate you coming on and, and uh, taking time out of your busy schedule. How did you choose and get into the field of fertility medicine? Did you go um, through no, a fertility actually... journey yourself? What's... What brought I did you not, into this? I did not. No, I, I did not. I, I, uh, I went into OBGYN. I actually went to medicine to be an orthopedic surgeon, believe it or not. Uh, but having uh, had a very severe uh, fracture when I was uh, in my late teens playing soccer, I sort of had PTSD. But anyway, I got into OBGYN because I wanted to be a GYN oncologist. I've always loved surgery, been, you know, always gravitated to the surgical uh, theater and, and, um, was sure that I would have a, a future in GYN oncology. And, and as during my rotations as a second year resident, I just fell in love with, with the practice of infertility. Uh, this is, you know, now over uh, 25 years ago, 26 years ago. So I've actually been in practice longer. Um, and um, I, I, there's, you know, it was very cutting edge. It was still very, very new. Um, and uh, just felt like this is the right place for me. I mean, it is uh, a way to be able to give back. It's so rewarding. And uh, I just didn't really want to tell people bad news all the time in the G1 oncology field. And this was so much better. And I, I never looked back. I've never had a regret about having chosen this specialty. It's phenomenal. It's incredible. The connections you make with patients is uh, is for a lifetime. Uh, in, in my one of my children's grades class i helped 12 parents uh have their children uh be uh with my son so it's an incredible feeling to to, to see that i uh on a day-to-day -day basis 
Yeah, it absolutely is such a rewarding field. I mean, people often say it's a dream to have kids. And unfortunately, so many people struggle to have it. So when you're able to go through the fertility treatments and see where science and technology has evolved and how many people are so successful in IVF, it's absolutely incredible and rewarding. I know, you, I know you mentioned that you don't like giving patients bad news, which is why you didn't wind up, you know, in college. But how do you handle... You know, as an OBGYN and a, and a fertility doctor, when someone goes through a cycle and then they have a failed embryo transfer or a miscarriage, how do you go about that conversation with them? With compassion and full transparency. Um, I, I remember, I literally remember the first patient um, that I had to tell. I could even tell you her name if I could. Um the first patient I had to tell that didn't get pregnant after an IVF cycle. Um, and it was uh, traumatic for me. I just didn't know what to say. You know, I mean, I, I really truly believe, I know it sounds cliche, but like so far after this many years of patients are not numbers for me. You know, I, I, I take a lot of pride in my work. I think everybody understands that. Unfortunately, this is even advanced tremendously, but we have not advanced a lot. Uh, or sufficient enough to to always have guaranteed results. Um, I think there's a reason why patients come to us is because there there definitely is a problem, and um, you know whether it's artificial insemination or in vitro or surgery like I'm about to do now, they're all very effective to a certain extent. Um, so, like I said, you know, transparency and compassion, and try to figure out what we could have done better. Um, what we can change, what we can do the same and dedicate time to that case instead of just being just another, hey, you didn't get pregnant, just let's just try again. I'm glad you said that because many, many physicians and many clinics, unfortunately, take the approach of, you know, want to just try it again. Let's try it again. But not every, not every couple is ready to just go on and try it again a month or two later because, Men are sometimes on different pages than their wives when it comes to trying again. I mean, listen, what I always tell patients, Daniel, is that um, there's nobody, nobody that, regardless of level of income, level of education, culture, no one says, you know, when I was 15 years old and thinking about who I was going to marry and the family that I was going to have or what my kids were going to do, ever thought, you know, when I meet Prince Charming or the, the woman of my dreams, I'm going to go to Hernandez Ray or to some infertility specialist to start a family. Nobody ever said that. And so just to get into my office, that's a big deal. You know, whether it's become uh, more commonplace these days or not, certainly it was not 20 years ago when I was a fellow. Um, so it's still very difficult. And then to get into my office and then to go through a procedure and then pay the, the money that you have to pay. Because unfortunately, this stuff is it's just very expensive. The technology, uh, in order to provide these services, sometimes is very expensive. The medications are exorbitantly expensive. And we certainly need to do a better job in this country of, of doing better, really, for patients. Not only in the infertility space, as you know, but in just in general. But certainly in the infertility uh, arena. Um, and then to get a diagnosis. Um, that may or may not be, uh, we may not be able to overcome. Or if you go through the treatment, 
not being able to get the results that you want or like you, you know, having uh, almost feeling like you got there and then having and taking it away is very difficult. It's very, very difficult. And that is a challenge. It's a challenge that has taken me a long time to like understand the psychology, to be academic, but pragmatic as well. And, and keeping the compassion that it takes to be able to walk these couples or, or that person, because nowadays it's, you know, there are single men and single women, that person through the, the facts of, of the case and trying to understand what our next steps are. I hope it's that a, wasn't too, no, too verbose, it, but it's fantastic. I know you mentioned that, you know, people down the line 20 years ago, people never knew what IVF was. People never even thought about, oh, I'm going to get married and I'm going to, try to have kids. And if I'm not able, I'm going to have to go down IVF. Nobody ever thinks about that. And that's something that I even didn't think about before I met my wife. We did it for genetic reasons or PGD, but even so no one ever spoke to me about what IVF is, what a miscarriage is, what it's like to go through that process. Do you think that patients or people in general should be educated on what is fertility, you know, infertility, what is you know, like to have a miscarriage and then go into this whole process further educated and have, you know, if it is male factor infertility, because 50% of cases these days are caused by, you know, male factor, that that early intervention, that more knowledge you have about it, the better off you will be throughout the process. I mean, I think it's just multifactorial. I think people in general don't want to don't want to be educated because they don't want to feel like they're going to face it, right? And, you know, like preemptively. Uh, it's not, it's not until you get there that you're like, okay, well, let me educate myself. And I would say the majority of, of men, uh, just don't take the time to educate themselves because they put the, the onus and the burden on, on the woman. Because certainly, as we all know, the women are the more complex beings in this, in this equation. And, you know, there's a lot more moving parts and they're generally more responsible for whatever is the cause of the infertility only because of their complexity. Um, number one, number two, you know, as you said, you said 50%. Well, you know, I think it's a little bit less. It's definitely increased tremendously in the male factor. Uh, but I think 50% is when it's more of a combined factor as opposed to a lone factor. And males are, you know, anywhere between, you know, depending on what you read, 25 to 35%. And there's a myriad of reasons. Primarily the most important that affects all, all men and women is just aging process, right? You know, I'm 52. I have two kids. Didn't have a problem, thank God, but I'm sure that I, I am not as fertile as I uh, was when I had my first child. And that's the most important part. And, you know, now we're having uh, second marriages or, you know, decisions made late in life about starting a family. Um, and then there's other factors too, external factors, ambient radiation, uh, endocrine disruptors, anabolic steroid use, comorbidities, obesity, all of these different things that are just playing a, a significant role. So I think we need to address those issues first, you know, and understanding whether it's fertility preservation for those who are postponing childbearing, you know, men or, men or women. Uh, number one, I think that would be paramount. Uh, number two, taking care of yourselves. You know, now people are wearing aura rings and checking their sleep numbers and, uh, and, getting on platforms like better me to do calisthenics, the 28 day uh, uh, program. I think those are phenomenal. I think it's going to have a huge impact 
on what we see today. Maybe not right now, but you know, somewhere down the line, and then hopefully not so distant future, we're going to see tremendous impacts in our favor that are going to improve fertility rates from that standpoint. Uh, in terms of the education, I you know, I think men, it's culturally, it's still a little bit more difficult. Um, the fact that you have this, you know, this podcast and and what you've taken up, I think is going to make a world of difference uh, uh, because I don't see infertility rates or people looting, uh, 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 looking for infertility care decreasing anytime soon. The way I see infertility and unfortunately or fortunately, everybody said that Corona was a pandemic. I see infertility as a, as a pandemic because it's just yeah. going to keep getting worse and worse over the years as people are getting married later, people are trying to have kids later. It's just, it's just getting worse and worse over the years. Yeah, well, it's incredible. We were never busier uh, than during the pandemic. What during the pandemic? I've heard a lot of feedback from men that they felt completely left out of the process because they weren't even necessarily even allowed in the clinics or during the retrieval process. What was it like for your, you know, for your patients? I know you mentioned about compassion, but throughout the Corona period how 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 did you guys handle it with with you know, the you know funny we we uh, uh we kind of thought outside the box a little bit so we bought uh several ipads and uh stands rolling stands and uh the men were like on facetime as if they were you know virtually there virtually present that is amazing and, yeah, we had like, oh, we still have them. I think we still sometimes use them. Um, you know, we have a lot of international patients. Um, and, and so, uh, a lot of patients from out of, out of South Florida that come to see us. And, and so we still use them, not as often as during the pandemic, but it was great. It was, it was phenomenal. Uh, I, I remember even having to get a, uh, you know, increase our gigabytes for our internet or internet service to be able to uh, accommodate the, the streaming that occurred during that time. But it was great. It was great. Not perfect for sure. Sure. But it was definitely, uh, it, it was welcomed by, by couples. Um, the fact that we were doing that. Let me ask you, since you have these iPads, one of the things that I would love to see implemented within the clinics, within the hospitals is incorporating the men into the retrieval process. Now that you have these iPads, could you see in the future bring the iPads and, and streaming the retrieval process for the husbands, you know, for the men to see what's going on in the room? Because a lot of men are at that point in time are so stressed and nervous. You know, what are the results going to be? How is she doing? You know, I remember going through it and being like, what's going on? You know, I, I'm allowed in for many other parts of procedures and for the, for the transfer process, but I'm not allowed in for the retrieval. So my brain is going on, you know, into, into worry mode. Yeah. I, I mean, I think your point is well taken. I, I, from a practical standpoint, uh, certainly in the United States being such a litigious country as it is, I mean, from a practical standpoint, I, I find it very, I, I find it very difficult that that will ever happen materialize. Uh, you know, it's kind of like in the surgery now, you know, I think every patient, you know, would love to be in, in, in the OR with me doing a robotic myomectomy or a laparoscopic surgeries that I have today. And it's just, you know, the hospital won't allow it. The anesthesiologist won't allow it. It's, it's just one of those, you know, sort of legal quagmires that we're in. Um, 
So I, I don't foresee that happening, certainly not in the United States, but hopefully maybe down the line. I, I don't have any problem with, with it. It's just from a medical legal standpoint, it, it becomes a little bit more difficult and tricky. Yeah, unfortunately, that's the case. I, I would yeah. love I would love if that could happen, but who knows? It, it's good to dream big and to see if that absolutely can, if, that, if that can change and happen. 100%. Because men men are distraught and worried throughout the process. What tips? You know, I know you look at things from a, from a holistic perspective and a compassionate perspective. What tips and advice would you give to patients walking into your office for the first time who've never been through this or have gone through? miscarriage or failed embryo transfer and are thinking about, you know, giving up? That's a tough question. I mean, everybody comes at this from a different perspective. I, I don't see my role as mandating anything. I think my role is, is, is or our role as infertility specialists is to, um, to give options, right? You know, there's options um, that some people immediately gravitate to. Some people, take a little bit of time to uh, allow to marinate and, and, and accept it or reject it. And there's people that just outright reject it. You know, I, I spoke to a couple yesterday um, who they're both older. He has kids um, from a previous relationship that, that, that um, he adopted and uh, they're completely opposed to egg donation, for example. Okay. I mean, it's definitely an option. It's certainly not her fault that she's older and is now in perimenopause. And, uh, you know, it, it, it is just the biology. That's the way it was designed. You know, our limitations with our limitations with IVF primarily stem, as, as we all know, uh, from the egg. Give me one second. No problem. Uh, stem from the egg, unfortunately. And, um, and you know, there's other things, of course, like embryo cultures and the techniques and all that stuff. But the primary, the, the biggest reason is, is, is an egg factor, essentially, primarily due to aging. And there's nothing we can really do about that. We haven't figured out yet. Maybe somewhere 10, 10 years down the line, uh, what's, what's, what's happening in the laboratory will be extended to the uh, clinical practice, which is, you know, creating eggs in the in the in the lab from cells from the buccal mucosa or from some other party that we can just zap and turn into eggs and that, that will solve all problems but we're not there yet unfortunately and that that is the important thing but anyway going back to your question is, is the counseling is is just educate yourself this is complex we can do a lot of counseling the, the problem is that patients they're overwhelmed. It's kind of like you going in front of your attorney or accountant. This is not what you do. Uh, there's a, a, an incredible emotional aspect that's tied to this. And so you generally are going to hear only about 50% of what I tell you and remember 25. And so I, over the years, you know, you kind of hone your craft a little bit to say, well, these are the important things. And I just repeat them over and over again so that at least they resonate once they've left the office. Yeah. Wow. I, I, I didn't even think that people retain only about 25%, you know, from that meeting. I, <laughs> I think I was very, maybe I'm different than most guys sitting in the office. Like I'm the one asking a lot of the questions and trying to figure out exactly what we're going to do, what the process is. But 
you know, it's true. It's all personality related. You know, it's all very individual. You know, there's some, some men that take, you know, the position that you've taken. And there's some men that are just happy to sit on the sidelines, be supportive. Don't, you know, be supportive, but, but just basically follow their wife's lead because it's their body. It's them that they're going through this process. I'll do whatever you say, honey, that kind of approach, which is, there's nothing wrong with it. It's just a different approach. How would you recommend to men? Like, what would you tell them to get more involved in the process? Like how, how, how would you tell them to get involved? Because obviously it's overwhelming sometimes sitting in front, uh, you know, of a fertility doctor. I always, I always think, that, you know, some therapy is always, is not a bad thing, you know, so that at, at least it, it, it provides a, a forum for husband and wife to speak in front of a third party that is, you know, well-versed in the, in the world of infertility. I, I never think that that's a bad thing because a lot of times people in general, you know, it's a human nature. It's just to lock down. They don't want to talk about it. You know, they only, they only talk about it when they're in my office. Otherwise it's, it's, um, you know, it's, it's not dinner, dinner table conversation. Um, and so it's, so there's this avoidance, if you will. I think always that's important. That's number one. It's key is also to education, like understanding what are the process like? I mean, I could, I, I can walk them through it. I use anecdotes all the time, all the time. So that they can relate to different things. And, and I'm never on time and people sometimes get mad at me, but like, I just don't feel that I'm like an attorney that says, sorry, your time is up. Let's move on to the next couple. So I'm never running on time. You never can predict how many questions people have and, and, and what they understand or don't understand or want to be, uh, uh, want things repeated or said a different way. So that's one of the challenges as being a practitioner is, is, is that aspect, which you always get dinged on reviews for. But it, it's not me being considerate of their time. It's trying to spend as much time as possible. And even when we spend that much time, there's still latency. There's still a gap between what is said, what is heard, how it's interpreted, and how it's processed. Wow. You mentioned the aspect of a couple should get therapy and talk to a third party. Whether in your office, is there anyone on staff that they have, you know, whether it be a social worker or a psychologist that they can talk to? Yeah, we, we, have a, 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 we have a couple of psychologists that we um, work with very closely that are intimately involved in, in our processes, the way we do things. Not better or worse, just the way we do things. And everybody has a different way of doing things. Um, and I think they're incredibly instrumental. The problem is that there's also a a component of obstructionism from the couple. I don't need therapy. It's considered a weakness to, you know, particularly in the male side. I don't need a therapist. We're fine. We're totally good. We're going to do this. Um, and it, they don't recognize the toll, psychological toll that it takes on the, uh, on the female for sure, but on the male as well. And, and what the males don't understand is that they're generally uh, um, functioning for two people, right? Because the woman is the one that has to get poked and prodded and 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 come to the office and worry about being on time and worrying about the medications. And the guy may be involved in, in just getting the shots or being there. But, but 
what they don't understand, what's happening in the background is that they are being supportive, not only for their wives, which is the most important thing, but for themselves. And they don't recognize that until sometimes it's too late. And they just like a breakdown and then marriages start crumbling. And, and it's, it's a terrible, it's a terrible, terrible uh, vortex that occurs. And this is why it's so important for the work that we're doing is to just end the stigma and then just to be open about this process and their feelings, their emotions, you know, have the support that they need through it because going I, through fertility, going through fertility treatments, it's not an easy thing. The two week wait, I mean, it's not just about how many embryos you have. It's will it stick, will it not stick? And then the first trimester, I mean, it's, it's such a roller coaster of emotions and it's so important for guys to be able to to talk about it and to have that and to have that resource and even utilize you know the clinics that they go to 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 get more information that they need because if you don't like you said if you don't talk about it you just break down and that breakdown is is very very difficult agree 100% one last class a question and I'll, then I'll let you go um cuz I know in between cases i've no, heard it's been of, fun this has been great we should do it again you know maybe an instagram live absolutely one one thing that I've heard, and I know it's really tough uh, because there's absolutely no regulation by the FDA when it comes to supplements. I've heard men say, oh, I should take this supplement. I've heard women say, I should take that supplement. It'll make me fertile. It'll help give me more embryos. What is your take on the whole supplement industry when it comes to fertility treatments? I, I think there's more written about the female than there is about the male, number one. Uh, number two, there's, there's some that are, uh, supplements that have been very much char- well characterized and, and have, uh, the, the, the robust support of the literature to recommend, like L-carnitine, for example, uh, um, some of the an- vitamin antioxidants, uh, NAC as well, uh, has been very, uh, shown to be very effective in, in improving, uh, morphology and even motility. Um, but in, in, so in the male space, there's, it's limited compared to what we have on the female side. Do you think that that's going to evolve over the future? That there's going to be a lot of research done on the male side and going to work together? Is, I, I think it's again multifactorial. I mean, we listen to Peter Atia and Tim Ferriss, which I do regularly. Uh, you know, the, 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 the guests that they have on board, I, I just, I just had a, a one-on-one meeting with uh, uh, a very well-known longevity expert in this country uh, uh, exactly a week ago, and we had a long discussion about you know fertility and 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 what we can do to to work together to to be able to think of infertility as part of the the longevity paradigm. You know, fertility health improves your longevity later on, and creating good habits from a very early uh time and you know 20 year old men don't think about fertility yes 25 year old women don't think about fertility maybe a little bit more now but it's 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 getting that education now like creating good habits from a very early time you know including my kids you know or in their or tweens basically instilling those those habits now that's a, that's what I'm thinking. Like I would really love. I mean, in Florida, imagine that the Florida Department of Education mandated that in the health education classes that they talk about 
infertility and they talk about miscarriage and all these factors that, oh, get tested and, you know, this way, early intervention, they know about it. They're not afraid to talk about it. They can talk the person to the left side because we know the statistics is one in six couples are going through infertility treatments and one in four are dealing with miscarriage. So the more we start talking about it from an early age, I mean, I can imagine if states would start doing this and mandating education in, in the school system that will be in a much better place in terms of the fertility community. Agreed. I can agree with you more. Thank you so much again for coming on. Hey, really thank you so much for having me. It's been a really uh, great experience. Great, What a pleasure to, to be on your show. And, and I love what you're doing. I think it's, you. uh, it was time uh, that somebody uh, did something like this. Thank you very much. Keep All up right, the have good a great work. day, Daniel. You too. Thanks so much, guys. Take care. Just listen to another great episode of Men Talk with Daniel Landau. If you've suffered from miscarriage, infertility, stillbirth, or infant loss and want to open up about it, reach out. We'd love to have you on the show. You can also join our Facebook group, or if you'd like to get involved and start a chapter in your neighborhood, visit our website, www.menshelpline.org today. Until next week, stay strong, and remember, you're not alone.